Hello and welcome to the Lorax, the podcast where we take our favourite sci-fi, fantasy and fictional settings and look at them a little bit too closely through historical, philosophical and cultural lenses. I'm Khalil. And I'm Alex. And this week we are looking at one of our favourite shows of all time. Um, also, following on from the previous episode about our other favourite show of all time. Yeah. This is... This episode, we're looking at Avatar The Legend of Korra. So The Legend of Korra is a sequel series to Avatar The Last Airbender. And it ran from about 2012 to 2014 in four chapters, four books, totaling 52 episodes. This time, we've got a female protagonist who is the new Avatar, the next generation after Aang, a female waterbender called Korra. The series is well known for addressing a lot of socio-political issues and uh, other cultural themes like revolution, social unrest, inequality, power, as well as the high quality animation and storytelling that the Avatar series is known for. So yeah, I think that the um you know the the thing with Korra is and the theme for this episode is is about taking a show and growing it with your audience and how the show grapples more teen teen-ish but also young adult uh themes uh and in fact you know the even the fact that it had a, a female protagonist was weirdly controversial um but what we're going to sort of look at with avatar is or avatar cora rather is the idea of growing with your audience and also there are some things as per usual in the podcast which we would like to think we like to pick apart and say you know ah, oh, we'll see what you were doing there but mm, you came close but you didn't come far, you go far enough Truly the biker mice from Mars effect. Yeah. Cor- <laughs> Legend of Korra is the biker mice from Mars of... That, that would mean that would say the Avatar is Street Sharks, which it isn't. So <laughs> let's abandon this metaphor right here and right now. So we're not going to go into too much detail about you know the, the fundamentals of the setting. So who the Avatar is, what bending is, things like that. Um, the four main nations involved in this world. For that you should probably check out the previous episode on Avatar The Last Airbender because we go into it in a reasonable amount of detail there. It's much richer if, you, if you've if you already immersed yourself in the world through that first series. So, as we've alluded to, Avatar The Legend of Korra is set in the same fictional world as Avatar The Last Airbender, but after a time skip, uh, specifically a time skip of 70 years. So, it introduces a rapidly a modernising and industrialised world inspired by the Roaring Twenties, and you could probably say inspired by the Roaring Twenties of America rather than other other areas. Yeah, which is an interesting um, div- divergence from the previous series, mm. uh, kind of focus on a lot of East Asian inspiration. Yeah, I suppose it could be argued that, that Republic City, which is the central location, uh, and a metropolis that was founded by uh, Avatar Ung, the um, the... Uh, the protagonist of Avatar The Last Airbender and his erstwhile antagonist Zuko, again, listen to the last episode if you want to know more about them, um, has a lot of those influences of sort of uh, Chinatowns found in Los Angeles and, and San Francisco as well, in that kind of continuation of the theme of the, the Asian-American experience we talked about in the last episode. Yeah, and it's very heavily kind of industrialised and, and things like that. And it's one of the ways that you kind of infer a lot about Ang's life, because... Mm-hmm. You know, we leave Aang at the end of Last Airbender still as a child. And by the time we arrive at Legend of Korra, 
he dead. He dead, yeah. And he has a beard, or had a beard. <laughs> yeah. And so it's through other characters and the marks that he's left on the world that you learn little bits here and there of what the rest of his time as an avatar and his adult life was like. Mm. So the the four nations of the original avatar, Earth, Water, Fire and Air, now uh, continue to coexist, um, but Republic City serves as sort of the hub where uh, all these nations sort of commingle, and the the greater the the wider world is sort of administ- administrated from. Although there are obviously the kingdoms still have their separate uh, leaders. Um, it's kind of like a cross between like imagine if the UN was an actual place. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of it's like it's like federalism to the nth degree, really, isn't yeah. it? Where Republic City is sort of like oh, this is where most of the magic happens, but all the other kingdoms have their own still have their own autonom- autonomy. Yeah, and in contrast to The Last Airbender, we arrive in this story at a time of relative harmony on a kind of global scale. Mm. There isn't this kind of, you know, international military strife. Um, And in that period of prosperity and relative harmony, we've seen advancements in technology. So, for example, there's you know, uh, automobiles and a lot of electrical appliances and things, as well as advances in bending. Yeah. Back in Last Airbender, we saw Toph invent the very beginnings of metal bending. That's come a long way. And there's also new things like lava bending and advances in the lightning bending that we used to see in the previous series. Mm. And all other aspects of bending have grown and developed in interesting directions there's even some uh for what's they even give a name to the the strange explosion magic from the first one it's called combustion bending which is which is a weird one ah yeah i gotta i gotta raise my little scientist (laughs) flag like burning combustion fire bending is combustion um, okay that's the last thing i'm gonna say on it (laughs) and so so into this time of relative peace and prosperity we are introduced to cora uh, who at the start of the show is shown as a baby, um, discovering, or rather her parents being told that she's going to be the next Avatar, I believe, as far as I remember, um, because she's a, prestig- a, prodig- prodigious. a prodigious waterbender. <laughs> and she has to undergo the journey, the same as Aang did, of discovering her, um, or rather developing her abilities with the other four elements. And we actually... We, we skip quite a lot of that kind of very early development in learning the different arts of bending like we see with Aang. And you know, from where the main story kicks off, Korra is shown to be already a very capable combatant. Mm-hmm. Um, she's very headstrong. She is you know, uh, free-willed. She is really uh, aggressive in her fighting style. Um, but she still needs to learn airbending. Mm. And also, uh, probably a key part of this as well, like, as you mentioned, she's a capable young woman. She's 17 years old when book one starts. Mm. Uh, a much greater, a much older age than Aang was at the start of Avatar The Last Airbender. And this is a prime example of what we were talking about earlier, about the show having grown up with its audience. Yeah. Um, and this really sets the scene for a lot of those more grown-up themes as we go on. We also uh, see a lot more involvement of the spirit world and its relationship with the material world in this sh- in this show compared to Last Airbender and the role of the Avatar as 
that bridge between the spirit and material worlds. Yeah, and I think a thing that people can bring in mind when watching Korra and and thinking about how we're exploring it as well is this this idea that uh, Korra as a character uh, becomes Avatar in a world that I think from I think it's mentioned to her a few times, but usually by ordinary people, but a world that is moving away from the idea of needing an Avatar. Yeah, because like we said, it's a it's a time of relative harmony, and there isn't this pressing need for a balancing force. In fact, that balancing force, the role of that has kind of been handed over to Republic City, mm-hmm. which is one of those interesting things about The Last Airbender as well, at, at the fact that it's not, a, it's not a story of restoring the status quo. It's, um, it's something that changes the world, and then the next story that comes afterwards starts from somewhere different. We also, later in the series, learn quite a lot about the origins of the bending arts themselves. But we'll get to that later. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about book one. Uh, again, the show's separated into books rather than seasons. It sounds very... That sounds nicer, doesn't it? It sounds more like a story. So book one is Air, where you might be able to guess Cora has to learn airbending. She arrives in Republic City, a, I guess, sort of a, a naive... And not in the not in the bad bad terms like provincial character uh, riding her uh, with her polar bear dog. Um, yeah, she's a you know a country girl in the big city. She yeah, grew yeah. up at the South Pole. Um, she has been to the Earth Kingdom to learn earth bending and the Fire Nation to to learn fire bending, but she's never been to this bustling metropolis like this before. Yeah, I think it's also worth actually something we, we didn't talk about is that Cora is. Um, as we mentioned, capable. So she 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 goes and learns these other forms of bending, and it's sort of glossed over in a way. Sort of, ah, oh, she that's fine. She she masters these relatively easily, um, and she has she is a character who is confident, headstrong, brash, very much the. I mean, I, Ang was never really com- uh, headstrong, or he was kind of brash, but he was never like fully confident in his like abilities or. Well, Ang quite often rejected the call to adventure, mm. whereas Cora was like oh yeah sick call to adventure i'll answer every time yeah um sometimes you know jumping into adventure when it wasn't maybe absolutely necessary yeah and uh she you know she gets she gets into a little bit of minor trouble uh around republic city by you know thinking okay i'm the avatar i need to be acting to help people um, but not really understanding the context of the situation she's acting in. Yeah, it's where we, we come up, up against the idea of a world not needing the Avatar because she arrives ostensibly to learn from, this is another connection to Ang from Tenzin, who is Ang's son uh, and a powerful airbender, the, so... the motions of airbending. But then Korra, uh, in, in arriving at Republic City, decides to try and do that thing you do as a anyone who plays... Uh, uh, for the Baldur's Gate fans out there, a lawful good character who turns up in a town immediately starts solving people's problems. She tries to stop crimes from happening, but uses her bending powers, and it causes chaos. And she's told, you know, by no certain ter- no uncertain terms, we have a police force. You know, <laughs> we're like, we don't need you to, to stop every mugging. And this um, this headstrong and kind of action oriented personality really brings her into conflict with Tenzin, her, her airbending teacher. So. Um, Tenzin is the eldest of Ang's children. So Ang, spoiler alert, um, had kids with Katara. Yeah. Um, and so he has uh, a daughter who is 
uh, a talented waterbender and healer. He has uh, his eldest son, Tenzin, who is an airbending master, who is tr carrying on the traditions of the uh, air nomads and really has this, this weight of responsibility on his shoulders. Voiced wonderfully by J.K. Simmons. Oh, I didn't know it was J.K. Simmons. That mm. makes a lot of sense now. Um, and there is another son, um, Bumi, named after Aang's best friend in the Earth Kingdom, who is not a bender. Um, he is a capable sh soldier, but also has a kind of clownish element to him for, for much of the story. And he kind of, he has the opposite um, of what Tenzin has, and, and he has this kind of guilt or inadequacy, um, almost like Sokka had, at being this mere mortal in um, a family of very powerful benders. Yeah. And uh, a quick, quick shout out to my boy Sokka, who is dead. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's just, he's just dead. Just dead. <laughs> they offed him, just like, just don't need him. Um, so, yeah, Cora uh, arrives in the big city uh, and involves her, it becomes involved with, uh, or rather joins uh, a pro-bending team. Pro-bending, which is this really interesting concept that Killian and I have talked about, where they take the ideas of bending and they're like, what if it was turned into a, a sport? Uh, and a bit like a bit like a mixture of like dodgeball and dodgeball and MMA and MMA yeah. yeah um so she meets she meets a pro bending team called the fire ferrets yes oh look at that look <laughs> at that not even in the notes not even in the notes because um these bending teams are normally made up of three and um one member of that team has quit yeah um and so they need a waterbender so she joins uh, Earthbender Bolin and f his firebender brother Marco. Marco, you might remember that name from last episode. Marco is named after the actor who voiced Uncle Iroh. Hmm. Uh, Cora is quickly showcases her skills as a bender of various uh, capabilities, uh, but I think it's while they're while they I think it is while there's a pro bending match going on that the main antagonists of this series turn up to cause some uh, some mischief. Yes, but it's not the first time we encounter them. We first, well, we first get reference to them when um, Cora is, she, she just arrived in the city and she's um, exploring and she finds the park, which is the closest bit of kind of nature-esque territory that she's found in the city. Um, and she doesn't understand why she's not allowed to, you know, take fish from the lake or you know, camp out. Mm. Um, and so she ends up, you know, kind of making friends with um, with a homeless guy who lives in a bush. But in the park, she encounters uh, a, a a campaigner, a, a, a street preacher, handing out leaflets for a movement called the Equalists. And yelling about how, you know, normal, you know, good, good normal people have been oppressed by these powerful minority of benders for too long and you know, it needs to stop, and Amon can stop it. Who's Amon? Well, Amon is uh, the first of four, arguably three, uh, antagonists in Legend of Korra who make kind of a point. Yes, um, and so the, the essential kind of argument of Amon and his followers, the Equalists, is that the very fact that kind of indiscriminately a tiny minority of people are gifted this incredible power um, that has in the past often been abused and caused a lot of strife 
and war and things like that. Well, surely if you could just make everyone equal and take away that imbalance of power, then the world would be fairer. And Amon apparently has the ability to take away people's bending. Yeah, he has a skill called energy bending. Uh, where he... Again, I'm not going <laughs> to get too much into my scientist pedantry about that. It's kind of like chi, isn't it? Like yes. That kind of way. Uh, where he, in large, showy gatherings of these people who support him... Kind of like um, a televangelist or like faith healer. Yeah, he, he ritually takes away the bending of people he's captured. For example, one of the first ones we see is he takes away the bending of a powerful gangster. Exactly. And so... Uh, while Cora is not unsympathetic to the cause of the Equalists, uh, she does end up in conflict with them, and through uh, various battles with Amon, actually has her own connection to uh, past avatars and her past lives severed by Amon, which leaves her powerless. But while she is in that state of powerlessness, she utilises her inner strength to unlock her capabilities as an airbender, and uses that to reveal Amon's true identity as a uh, a rich kid. <laughs> <laughs> a rich kid bloodbender. Yeah. Um, so bloodbending you might remember as a specialist form of waterbending that allows you to control uh, the liquid within living beings. It does connect also to a spoiler in, in uh, Airbender, which we won't talk about. Mm. Um, but Amon has been using this bloodbending, really, to control people and to, to take away their bending. Mm. With the help of a member from the Water Tribe who is related to Amon, they manage to defeat him, and everything is great again. Yeah, well, you know, we've restored Korra's connection with her past lives. Mm. Um, She's deus ex machina by Aang, who comes back and restores all of her uh, avatar abilities. Yes. Um, also, during this series, we another character that we meet who's very important is Asami, who is... Uh, the heiress to a kind of industrialist fortune and company. Mm -hmm. um, and she is a, a very talented engineer, martial artist, race car driver, um, just all round triple threat. Yeah, absolutely. So we finish uh, book one with Cora getting used to the idea of living a modern life, accepting her role as uh, the avatar being the bridge between the physical and spiritual worlds, and also getting her kisses in. Uh, or at least getting her kisses in in the form of various uh, love triangles, <laughs> anyway. Yeah, this is the beginning of the uh, complex romantic politics of this... Uh, <laughs> everyone, we'll talk about it. Every, everyone gets their kisses in, in court. <laughs> There's so much kissing. Uh, but before we get to the kissing, we've got to talk about book two. Book two. So book two is titled Spirits, which you might be able to guess from the title. It's all about the role of the Avatar as the bridge between the spirit and material world. And it also is about uh, the kind of pathological elements of spirituality as well as the, the, um, the important aspects of it. So dark spirits start to kind of invade Republic City, intrude, cause trouble, and it's initially not super clear why this is happening. So we, we discover that the reason why there are dark spirits attacking, well, not attacking, appearing in Republic City, is that there is an imbalance caused by a ongoing civil strife 
soon-to-be civil war happening between the northern and southern water tribes. The southern water tribe, coincidentally, is led by uh, Korra's father, Tunrock, mm-hmm. whereas the northern water tribe is led by Unalak, uh, Korra's uncle, um, who we discover is basically messing things up because there is a, um, I, I believe, what's it called? The, bri- is it the bridge? Is it called the bridge between spiritual worlds in the, su- in the south of the world? Uh, I can't remember what the exact name, but, but both poles have uh, a portal to the spirit world. That's it, yeah. Uh, so Unalak wants to control both so that he can... Uh, he, ha- he Because he has his own machinations. So that's why Korra travels to... She travels to the southern water tribe to try and sort things out. As as part of her journeys into the spirit world and her learning about it and her exploration of it, uh, she learns, and, and we learn, a decent amount about the origins of Bending and the first Avatar and how he achieved this combination of power and how he met these two kind of fundamental spirits of the world. Um, one dark, one light. We have Rava on the light side and Vatu on the dark side. And they're constantly in an in infinite battle. Yeah. Um, sometimes one gets a bit of the upper hand, sometimes the other, but neither is ever fully destroyed. It's very reminiscent of lots of like human theology and, and religion, the idea of a, a light and a dark that are constantly fighting. Yeah, and the fact that um, the dark has to be enough of a threat to be meaningful, mm. um, but not so much of a threat that it's hopeless. Inside you, there are two avatars. <laughs> um, and Rava, the good spirit, um, is the one that primarily gives the avatar their power. Mm. So you might be wondering what happened with Vatu. Mm. Well, Paul Vatu uh, was... Well, I, I mean, I think after many millennia being trapped inside of a tree in the spirit realm, probably would leave you with a few hang-ups. Uh, and if if someone comes along who happens to want to maybe merge with you to create a form of dark avatar uh, to reconnect the physical realm with the spiritual realm, but not just reconnect, but merge the two so that spirits get regain their rightful place on the... Uh, I'm get, I want to say the material plane because I've been playing too much Baldur's Gate again. <laughs> but in the, in the real world, let's say, then you might take him up on that. And so... Uh, that is the main threat that Korra ends up having to fight in a climactic battle at the end of the season. It's would, an excellent climactic battle. It's a very good battle. I, I, people sometimes think that book two is the weaker of the four, but um, I think that's because people get a bit... that people don't like the the, the sort of religious the, theological undertones. Of yeah, the, and I think the pacing is a little slower than some of the others. It's because you've got to get the kisses in. <laughs> you've got to get the kisses in. Yeah. It doesn't... Is this the one... This is the one where Bolin... Bolin um, and the twins. Yes. Although one of the twins. Yeah. We should say. We should say one of the twins. <laughs> We're not going to tell you which one. <laughs> but if you like giant glowy, uh, like, human kaiju battles with yeah. chest lasers... This is just series. Absolutely. Um, and through that conflict with Unalak, Korra uh, kind of re-establishes her, her role as the connection between the spirit world and the physical world, which was kind of threatened by Unalak. Mm. But also, because of something that happens in that conflict between Rava and Vatu, she loses... Once again, her connection to past avatars. Yeah. 
which I think causes her to is, is causes her to temporarily lose her powers at this point, isn't it? Mm. Which uh, becomes a a major driving force and a major part of her story for book three. Now, book three is when things really start to uh, raise when, the stakes. When the kettle starts to boil. Yes. So Cora is now, you know, at possibly her lowest point so far. Even though she's, you know, saved Benders and then the world. We should actually mention that uh, at the end of season two, and we didn't mention, with, well, it was rather book one. At the end of book one, Cora uh, uh, instigates the first non-Bender leader of Republic City, I believe. Yes. And at the end of book two, um, she decides to converge after all. The, the worlds of the spirits and the and humanity or the real world I guess whatever you want to call it the physical world um, advised both for and against it by different people she chooses to merge the two of them together and deal with the consequences as they emerge and those consequences start to appear in book three while she's trying to deal with uh, the aftermath of losing her own connection to the spirits yes um, so Cora is at a low point she has lost her connection with the past avatars hmm. so despite her previous victories People also don't necessarily see them as unalloyed good. Um, there's a lot of public backlash against, for example, a spirit forest that starts to uh, encroach on and merge with Republic City, things like that. And even the spirits themselves, so, some of the spirits don't like the fact they sort of say we never asked to be merged with the with the the physical world. So she's getting it both barrels, really. It's almost like with great power, you should you should do good stuff. You should you should, you should think about what you're doing. With great, with great power, you you be responsible. Have a have a think. So, it's time for a new threat. Yeah. And this threat comes in the form of four incredibly dangerous super terrorists. So, um, there is a leader called Zahir, who uh, is one of the very lucky people who, with the convergence of the spirit world and the material world, gain airbending mm. so this is a really mixed blessing because for tenzin and kaya and bumi who are trying to re uh re-establish the air nation these are the first new airbenders in a generation in more than a generation since you know the beginning of last airbend but it's very unpredictable who gets those powers and whether they want them so there are some people who wake up in the earth kingdom and suddenly they have these uncontrollable new powers that they're scared of. Or they could be a super terrorist in a prison who manages to break out. Yeah. And then goes around getting the band back together. <laughs> so there is a combustion bender, explosion firing lady. There is uh, a lady with no arms who's a water bender. Who, That's very cool. Uh, is being kept in a volcano prison. But as soon as she gets any water, she makes these tentacle arms. And there is the larveriest of lava benders. Yes, very larvary. I would say that I I think book three is probably my favourite of the four. Um, I, I think that it's the most within reason. We'll talk about it in a minute. Most well thought out, but also I in terms of storyboarding, animation, and pacing, I think it's mm. just it's spot on. I think it really the show really finds its groove with this with this book. I think it does benefit from the setup of the previous. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it, it, it they, they give it the fuel to really like this this book this this uh this chapter of the of the show just goes. Mm -hmm. It's hard, it's hard to put down if if you continue the book metaphor. So Zahir and the Red Lotus, which is the name of his little gang, um they are essentially 
hardline anarchists. Yep. Um, they believe that order and government are antith- antithetical to freedom. And all the structures of the world need to be demolished. Um, again, another bad guy who, to a certain extent, has a little bit of a point. But takes it to the, you know, 101st extreme. So, uh, Zaheer, uh, at, the sh- at the start of this book, you're not sure what Zaheer's plans are. Only that he and his gang are, are very intent on... Uh, capturing the avatar and throughout the show throughout this this uh, this iteration of the show there are the viewer has questions that are oh, is because Zahir presents himself and his group as, as, as saviors saviors and the, uh, the viewer might w- watches and thinks oh perhaps you know these guys want the avatar to to remove the need for the avatar to be this like figure of authority uh but <laughs> unfortunately if you were like me you thought maybe you thought too much about thought you gave these people too much credit um because uh zahir who who manages to achieve flight through his airbending um becomes an extremely powerful opponent for all of the gang um especially while tens is trying to build up the new air nation and they end up capturing cora and in in a, in a series of quite for again even the teens show distressing sequences mm. essentially torture her uh, give her mercury poisoning and remove her ability to 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 bend at all yes uh despite well as well as being or maybe because it is the possibly the best of these four series of legend of cora this series does have some of the the hardest to watch bits. Mm. It's like it's, you know, it's not necessarily gruesome, but it's it it's definitely that bit that I find, yeah, the most difficult to to watch. It's, yeah. it's very affecting. So uh, it should be mentioned that Zahir and his group actually succeed in destabilizing and um, cutting the head off, let's say, the Earth Kingdom by um, killing the uh, the Earth Queen, uh, which Zahir does by um, and uh, spoilers. And in case tick tock tick tock tick tock does by removing all the air from the lungs of the earth queen um uh, I, I did have it down here in the notes later but i want to bring it up right now he does that it, i mean it's it's a pretty again mad moment in the show but it does go hard because as he's as he's killing her he says freedom is as essential as air <laughs> well, he's pulling her air out of her lungs which... Lines that go hard. <laughs> but yeah so uh, essentially turning the, and, and tells the people of the Earth Kingdom you're free to do as you want. And in a very, we'll discuss it later, sort of liberal idea of what anarchism means, uh, shit goes down, everyone decides to start stealing stuff, uh, the Earth Kingdom falls apart, and it's up to uh, the gang to restore order. And that's in that process that Korra is then captured and the horrible things happen. And we'll, don't worry, we'll, we'll go into this stuff in a bit. We're just yeah. getting through the plot. And we, again, as with the last episode of, of Avatar Last Airbender, we are are flying through this stuff. There are so many subplots we're missing out. There's so much extra stuff you'll miss unless you watch the show. So watch the show! So, uh, series three ends with a climactic conflict which Korra gets through, but barely. Mm. And then we have ourselves a good old-fashioned anime time skip <laughs> for book four. Um, and... This I know we said that we, she starts the last uh, book at her yeah, first point. That's true. But now she really is a <laughs> now she's a pit fire. <laughs> so yeah, she's um she's no longer able to bend at all. 
She's, uh, yeah, bare-knuckle boxing. Uh... I think she can bend, but she's severely weakened at this point. Mm, she, she's yes. the Because she has the mercury removed from her body, but there's and still the pieces thing. of it inside. Yes. So she's basically reduced to being a, a mid-rate, like mid-level earthbender or you know waterbender, firebender. Yeah, but um, we see her getting her absolute ass handed to her in like a fighting pit. Yeah, um, and this is kind of a masochistic thing. She needs to feel conflict and meaning and uh, avoid really dealing with any of her big issues. Yeah, yeah, and, it's, it's... And responsibility. You know, Ang Ang avoided responsibility because it was scary and he didn't want to embrace it. Cora jumped into responsibility. And it, it 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 punched her in the face. <laughs> yeah, and and, it, and and actually, no joke. She has full PTSD. Yes, she's uh, she's full of trauma, uh, and not dealing with it in a in a in a well in you would say a healthy way, but dealing with it in the only way she knows how, which is to isolate herself and go back to the basics of what she is what she's about. So, in contrast to the previous series, this series is big bad, is one of authority. So we see a great uniter who has come to bring stability and safety and order to, to her whole... new empire. To just a little bit of the Earth Kingdom and then to the whole of the Earth Kingdom and maybe to the whole world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. While working under the auspices of, you know, I'm doing this to help by the, by the side of the other Earth Kingdom rulers and, and like sort of mid-level uh, officials. And then being, and once you have enough of that power to take the big old grasp and say, I don't want the Earth King to come, or the the heir to the Earth Throne to to take over. Why don't I take over the? Uh, because I've shown the real. And, steel and to be fair, Kuvira, which is her name, mm. um, initially does get results. Trains so, run say, on time. <laughs> say what you like about Kuvira, but the bandits. <laughs> yeah. um, but this obviously rapidly becomes. Uh, problematic levels of control because um, because of Kuvira, who when takes taking control of the Earth Kingdom, in, from her her side, in terms is right because her argument is the Earth Kingdom, the largest of the kingdoms. Why, why shouldn't the Earth Kingdom, the largest of the four kingdoms, simply not eat the other the other three? <laughs> Kuvira of planet Omicron Percy I eight exactly, and 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 uh, concludes as most authoritarian leaders do that. Uh, democracy or in this case high level federalism um is weak and decadent and uh cannot survive and therefore uh she decides to invade not only all the other kingdoms of the world but mostly focusing on republic city yeah well again uh, that's republic city's role as a kind of symbol of you know unity yeah. and uh kind of cooperation with all its faults it's you know the kind of the the avatar city yeah I'd say that this 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 book as well is probably the most straightforward in terms of its like plot line and arc. It's very much a war I mean, story. You have a fascist baddie. Yeah, yeah. It's very much like a yeah. I say war. I mean like a you know. What I mean like a Star Wars yes. kind of or a classic Western action film, adventure film kind of. Or arc. A bit like Last Airbender. Yeah. Last Airbender had you know this big global domination war like lord as a bad guy, and this is similar. Although Kuvira rises through the ranks from being a, a low-ranking mm. uh, officer. I would say as well, there's a lot of... Going back to like the animation and stuff, there is a lot of... Um, in this in this book particularly, a lot of really, really cool metal-bending animation. Yes. There's a bit where uh, Su Yin, who is a character you, you 
might not know, but she is a, a very powerful metal bender who was at one time Kavira's uh, superior. Um, is fighting Kavira, pulls a metal panel off of a tank, wraps it around her body, and then throw and then throws pieces of metal at Kavira as she's doing. It's very very cool. I had to pause and rewind it a few times. There are especially like, in this series, Kavira. Um, has a couple of very cool duels and and kind of close up fights, yeah. um, including one with Cora. Yeah, um, and she beats Cora's ass in front of an entire army, which establishes her dominance and her status as a bad guy who we currently don't have an answer to. So Cora's got to get her powers back. She yeah. goes into the center of the spirit wilds, ostensibly to meditate and reconnect um, and meets Toph from the previous series who is living as a Yoda style hermit mm. um, just a grumpy old blind lady in the woods Yeah. Um, and in her customary grumpy old blind lady style um, kind of forces Cora to confront and come to terms with some stuff and takes out the last remaining vestiges of that um, that poisoned metal uh, from her body yeah, and then there's also a. I think Cora also in this season mi- mirrors herself at the start because she also wants to seek, mostly wants to seek a non-violent resolution to the situation with Kavira, uh, like in a reverse of how she started the season, which was entirely violently. Yes, yeah, she she was she was uh, a hammer and everything looked like a nail, mm. and now she's yeah trying to trying to have a non-violent solution to what ultimately ends up being a very violent problem. Um, there is a climactic and very cool battle. More big stuff, more beams, more uh, friends and allies and hijinks. Um, we don't want to spoil it because, again, these few episodes uh, at the tail end of this series yeah. are very exciting. Yeah. But ultimately, it ends with Cora at a point of kind of she's grown a lot over these four series she's had ups and downs a lot of downs and this is her realizing that she can let go a little bit of that obligation yes she is the avatar and and she has a role and she has a place in the world but also she can't solve every problem and that kind of balance between power and uh, and the sharing of it, letting go and holding on, order and you know randomness and disorder, um, power at the top, power at the bottom. It's a surprise that this book is called Book Four: Balance. Yeah, <laughs> and I'd say the balance is probably the overarching theme of the entire show. But we'll talk about that in a sec. Yeah, I think just to bookend it as well, I. I, I... Get it? I uh, I like the fact that as opposed to Ang, who who ends, you could say, the Last Airbender as a as a like a fully rounded character with like uh, from the at the end of a journey. Um, the Korra ends Legend of Korra at least in the show because we're not going to talk about the expanded comics and stuff um, as a still somewhat flawed, but not not in a bad way. But you know, like a normal person is flawed. And she also she ends the series both literally and figuratively, at the beginning of her next journey. Yeah. Which, again, don't want to spoil it. Cool. Up next, we're going to complain about it. (laughs) 
here's the the second part where we dive a bit too deep, as we said at the start, to inspirations uh, and our own sort of analysis. Um, maybe we're not quite up ourselves enough to call it critical analysis yet, but uh, you know, some uh, some two a.m. late night party analysis. The first of which, some sexy analysis. The first, analysis after dark. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you can't tell, but uh, we're uh, we're not wearing clothes. Um, we are. Uh, so the big thing, actually, that the uh, you can toggle them on and off. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so one of the things, the big things about Cora, that when you boil it down, sometimes to the reason why some fan, some of the fan base don't like Cora compared to Avatar. Because it has a female protagonist. I honestly don't understand that. And that's not just me being high and mighty, like, oh, you know, I'm a, a modern person who doesn't mm. you know, care. About it. But, like, it's objectively an incredible story, and she's objectively an amazing character. Mm. Especially an amazing main character. Yep. So, like, you've got to, I don't know, you've got to have a, a real specific... Uh, be in one's bonnet to... I don't like women with agency. Right? Right? <laughs> like, a real... A real... I don't know. It's a real basic, like, yeah. specific form of sexism. Well, but yeah, I know. And what's what's so mad about it as well? This show, like we said, came out... Or it ran from 2012 to 2014. Yeah, right. Uh, but it wasn't just the fans, because uh, the animation director, Eugene Nguyen... Um, said that Nickelodeon wasn't sold on a female protagonist either. They even suspended production because the protagonist was female. Um, and then he said, uh, he said of this, and I quote, to compare this situation to movie production, it's as if the lead actor had already been cast, but the production agency decides to stop filming because they don't approve of the actor. Um, but because of the creators and the, um, excuse me, because of the creators and the animation studio's persistence, Nickelodeon changed their minds because according to you, we wouldn't take no for an answer, and we finally got their approval. I disagree with that analogy. Because if you cast a main actor for something, and then someone of the, one of the higher-ups doesn't like that actor, there could be a lot of reasons why they don't like that actor. It could be hmm. a certain style of theirs that, you know, that they don't like. Or it could be that they don't think they have the right look. Or it could be that maybe they're off-screen a dickhead. But... Yeah. To complain about a fictional character because of their gender, I think is a is a much more specific and and thing to do. <laughs> Are we allowed to say? Uh, I'll ble- I'll probably bleep that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Now I've got to really look out for it. Uh, no, because you know they're just all stuck together. Yeah. Um. Another little interesting tidbit that is away from the everyday sexism is that um, Cora's actually named after a dog. Well, not named after a dog, inspired by a dog that the uh, the creators met while in Canada. And they just like, it was Cora with a C, C-O-I, and they immediately liked the name. But as uh, any real fantasy writer <laughs> who's worth their salt will do, you, ch- you change the letters around a little bit to make it sound more uh, fantasy. So... C O R A became K O R R A. Also, because K is one of those uh, those classic mm. uh, make it cooler letters. Exactly. And I don't just say this as someone with a K at the beginning of their name. <laughs> uh, and also, you know, an interesting tidbit is Cora's uh, companion and best friend, arguably, is a polar bear dog. Yeah. So, is that like a tribute to the original Cora? Maybe. We don't know, but maybe. maybe it's sweet. Yeah. So, going on to the 
capital T themes yeah. of, uh, of, of Legend of Korra. The biggest one, and to an even greater extent than The Last Airbender, is that of balance. Um, balance and harmony. But again, not entirely in a centrist way, but not entirely in a radical way either. No, no. I would say there, there's less of a there's less of a return to the status quo about the balance in Korra than there is about it in in uh, in Airbender. Yes, yeah. Even though the world is different from the beginning of Airbender to the end of Airbender, it's for for a three series show that distance isn't that great. Mm. Whereas with Legend of Korra, every series, the world at the end is fundamentally different from the world at the start. Yeah. And that has real implications for the, re- the, the next bit of the story or the, the whole rest of the story. It's a series of major changes in the world that Korra is involved in and that change her. Yeah, and I, I think that this uh, the aspect of how many imbalance occurs throughout a lot of the main protagonists of, of Korra, who obviously for time reasons we don't really mention that much. Uh, you know, even... Uh, Bolin and Marco Tenzin has a has a probably one of them not the most dramatic but a very a very impactful character arc throughout the show and this theme of balance is I think best exemplified in the villains mm-hmm. because as we alluded to each of the villains in each of the series the, the primary antagonists I don't really call them villains mm. Um, each of the primary antagonists kind of has at least a little bit of a point. Yeah. Kuvira the least, yeah. um, I would say. But uh, especially the first three, you know, Amon is all about equality and Unalak is all about connection with the spirit world and, and that kind of consciousness. And uh, Zahir is all about freedom. And Kuvira... You know, even though she's a fascist, it's all about uh, you know safety and order. Mm-hmm. But they have all kind of devoted themselves to these ideals, to the to the forsaking of everything else, and that is the inherent imbalance in each of those arcs. Exactly. Uh, we're going to don't worry because we are going to uh, explore the the points they make and where uh, the show tips a little bit too far off the scales in just a moment. But one of the other big things I want to talk about is the idea of, and it's also something that I see not necessarily critics, but people uh, disliking about Korra, is this idea of rapid industrialization and change, uh, which fits into the balance and harmony as well, because we're looking at, from Airbender, a society that you could probably say is coded between, I don't know, 13th and 16th century Earth, like technological-wise, with the addition of magic, obviously. Um suddenly being transported to the 1920s. I, I would raise a little finger there um, because I would say that the, the, the kind of the timeline equivalence of, of Airbender is a little bit less clear than that because, for example, the Fire Nation already have, you know, combustion-powered or steam-powered, fire-powered ships. Mm. And there are kind of proto-tanks and trains and things like that so you know deciding that it is because it's aesthetically inspired by a lot of medieval um eastern asian uh, kind of aesthetics i think it's a little bit of a 
a faux ami to like think that that also means that it must technologically be in that time. No, I think that's a very good point. Uh, and you're right. I, I, I guess it's sort of that idea of this um, Renaissance era. Uh, but, you know, what if they had, you know, th- these free forms of energy at their disposal, you know? Well, yeah, because, you know, Marco works in a power plant, lightning bending all day. Mm. So there are thermodynamic implications of that. Where does all that energy <laughs> come from? Let's put away the science hat. Yeah, but moving, I think that the the show does quite well in in sort of moving, taking that idea, and not just sort of sweeping under under the under the rug and say, ah, you know, you know, whatever. They just we wanted to do a, a show set in this time period, so we did it. There are actual implications for this rapid change. The the Republic City, when we first meet it, has, and in fact, so does the Earth Kingdom, huge class divides for for in air quotes developed nations. Um, in fact, two of the main characters, Berlin and Marco, sleep on the streets, despite the fact they're pro-benders. <laughs> or they still, rather, they sleep on the streets when they arrive in Republic yeah. City. And even despite them being pro-benders... They sleep in the gym. They sleep in the gym, or they have a, and then they eventually get a little pokey apartment together. Yeah. Um, and another character we've already talked about, Asami, is the heiress to an industrial conglomerate. And has her own race car. Has her own and, race car. Uh, you know, a mansion and things like that. Mm. And uh, there's also another character we haven't mentioned, uh, Varric, who's a... Uh, <laughs> I love Varric! The flamboyant businessman, <laughs> who I think uh, he really it epitomises that sort of conspicuous consumption, rapid industrialization of the early 20th century. And in fact, in some ways, also it's disaster capitalism because yes. he actually kicks off the Water Tribe Civil War uh, so that he can exploit there to it. Take advantage yeah. Of the situation. yeah, he kicks off the Water Tribe Civil War in, in Act Two, um, so that he can profit on it by selling stuff to both sides. Um, a real sort of, and he's played for jokes, but he's also quite a. Uh, he has his own little luck, but he is quite, quite a conniving, you know, scheming kind of guy. Yeah, yeah. The, his his character arc um, goes in a very satisfying kind of uh, set of directions. Mm. Um, but yeah, he is a real. Real piece of shit. Yeah, a charming one, but a real piece of shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, can we say shit? Yeah, we can, we can say shit. That's for sure. <laughs> so, on the subject of inequality, um, that is ostensibly the motivating drive behind Amon, first antagonist of the the of the, of the show. Our first point-making antagonist. Um, yeah, he's. I think when I first watched Korra, I was impressed actually with Amon as a villain because of I was like, oh, okay, this is this is some nuanced shit. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, especially coming out of Airbender when it's like, okay, there is one main bad guy and he is a genocidal world conquering dickhead. Yeah, I I I remember seeing a quote um, uh, from the one of the creators, Brian Kinesco, saying they wanted to, they wanted to do uh, people uh, from the bottom trying to rise up. Um, which is, you know, it's not a very nuanced statement, but, um, but you know, it, it, if you if you if you pad some nuance around that, <laughs> yeah, like, you know, the last Airbender was a king, mm. a king punching down at the world, yeah, and these villains are various, various different shades of, um, more of a, uh, yeah, punching uh, up. Against power, but also sideways against everyone else. Yeah. So Amon's, uh, and as we mentioned earlier, you know, a lot of the things these guys want do get implemented in a in a in a kind of way by Korra at the end of it, anyway. But Amor, Amon's approach is sort of, uh, you know, the idea of 
the the like we said the minority of the people holding the majority of the power um but there are as is the case with with Zahir later on his means are usually um placed through terrorism uh, yeah. uh intimidation kidnapping kidnapping yeah. and taking away people's like bending yeah. so <sighs> i know that there isn't really a direct real world parallel with this because mm. it's not like you know chopping off mike tyson's arms because we all have arms um but in that desire to promote equality in mm-hmm. a, in, in in a certain way and to remove that power imbalance he is stripping away people's agency he is stripping away fundamental parts of who, who people are um and he sees the avatar as you know the ultimate bender um and instead of being a force for balance sees the avatar as a force of domination because how does the avatar tend to enforce balance enforce their will through threat of violence which you could say about any incarnation of state violence uh, or of state power yeah it's enforced by threat of violence i i one of the things i, I find interesting about aman as well is that I don't know how you view it, but this idea of him being exposed in air quotes as a hypocrite by being a waterbender and also being technically a noble. It, it's this very champagne socialist kind of approach of being like, and oh, he's hes rich, so he, he that must mean that he's actually doesn't give a shit about <laughs> these people. And, and also the idea that, you know, uh, no one should have this immense power. Except me. Um, which... Unfortunately, is something that you sometimes see in revolutionary leaders, yeah. um, which is why you often get post-revolution dictatorships, um, because you need power to take away power from other people, but then it can be quite hard to let go of. Yeah, yeah. I guess there's there's shades of uh, your man syndrome from The Incredibles, when everyone yes. everyone is super, no one will be. <laughs> so, Unalak's motivation. Unalak sees, and this is in the context of that rapid industrialization and this period of uh, relative wealth and prosperity, but with it, that inequality. Unalak sees that as a, a degenerate state and that we are losing touch with not just the physical world, and, but also the, the spiritual world, mm-hmm. which, you know, in a, in a kind of real world parallel, if you look at our relationship with the planet that we live on, and the other living things in it, and how they're all connected. Um, Almost kind of a a Gaia theory type thing. Yeah. Um, Gaia theory being um, something championed by uh, a scientist called James Lovelock, um, which was that we should think of the Earth as a superorganism, and us as part of it, rather than lots of separate living things that we don't have to ever give a shit about. Mm -hmm. So, the fact that all this advancement has come at the cost of our connection with the world is is a problem. But then Unalak's way of dealing with that, again, is to assume ultimate power and make the decision for himself. Mm. It's very, uh, you know, the, the idea of religious fundamentalism uh, and it's and it's through path to fascism in a way as well, and and using spiritualism and, and also ecofascism as yeah, well. Yeah, ecofascism. Yeah, U- using spiritualism and and again uh, that 
that that like you said that the ecofascism as a tool for manipulation. Uh, and in fact, something interesting uh, I I pulled out I pulled this out of the wiki. So thank you, wiki. Um, that in the show uh, I didn't realize while watching it, the Southern Water Tribe is in air quotes less developed than the Northern Water Tribe. Yeah, because they suffered more at the hands of the Fire Nation in mm. the in the big war. So like the Southern Water Tribe, which is where Korra is from as well, is very much sort of um. It looks more like a, a small town where it's got like its apart from its big Ferris wheel and everything like that. Very much a small town, Northern Water Tribe. That's still that huge bastion with like the huge walls mm-hmm. and everything. And in the show, Unalak, you know, uh, says that you know the Southern Water Tribe's lost its way and needs to be taught the uh, the real way of things by this this uh, advanced Northern, you know, this advanced mm-hmm. version of the society infringing on a in quote a quotes backwater to teach them the 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 true the way, one true path, yeah, yeah, one true path. And again, it's it's a removal of agency. Mm-hmm. It's it's being like you are clearly wrong in your version of your relationship with the spirits. There is one way, my way. I will assume power, both material and spiritual. And make that decision for you. This isn't like um, an argument over the existence of of spirits uh, and deities and things. They they exist, and everyone people know they exist, right? So it's not like saying um, the I I'm doing this because of the idea of a deity, or I'm doing this because of the idea of spirits. They they are real things that he you can physically go and meet them. that he can has met and goes and mm-hmm. meet and can meet. Um, so, you know that that makes it a lot more tangible as a as a, a source of uh, a goal, or, or or in fact his goal of you know com- converging these two worlds, which, as we mentioned earlier, does actually happen. Which is why I see it, um, as well as the religious um, kind of angle, mm. I see it more as a an eco fascist approach rather than a a kind of a theocratic approach mm. because. If we are going to draw parallels with our world, yeah, it is the very tangible, but also sometimes invisible, superorganism of the Earth that we have lost touch with, and that you know, I'm sure some some people would love to have ultimate power to, yay, fix our relationship with the Earth, but mm. you know, in a way that removes uh, agency and consent from people and harms a lot of people. Villain three. Yeah, let's talk about Zaheer. Oh boy. The bald bad boy. Is he an anarchist? <sighs> <laughs> he is the flanderization of an anarchist. Mm. Um, and the portrayal that anarchy gets and anarchism gets in most popular media. Yeah. He's very much the uh the the A symbol drawn on a school book of anarchism. Yes. Um, no rules, no power, no structures, um, absolutely nothing. Um, and while that might sound like, oh, great, yeah, pure freedom, in any, and this relates back to Amon's argument, actually, in any uh, world or group of people, even if you remove all the formal power structures there will be emergent power structures based on people's personalities and people's abilities and Mm -hmm. things like that. So really, the best way uh, to... And even Gramsci, who was um, one of the... one of the um, 
kind of godparents of modern anarchism, um, even Gramsci acknowledged that rather than removing all power structures, you need to have some agreements in place that mitigate the emergent power structures that can emerge mm. from just interactions between people. So, for example, making sure that people, you know, that, that, that the quiet people get to speak and things like that. You know, that's a small example of that kind of technically a structure, but which guarantees or, or tries to avoid imbalance. I mean, without, without trying, without turning this into a podcast about anarchy, anarchism rather, it's like the fundamental thing that is forgotten in a lot of depictions of anarchy uh, or anarchism is the idea that is that anarchy, ah, I keep saying anarchy, anarchism is built on democratic organisation. Mm. Like people think that it's it's everyone does what they want. No, it's not. It's built on consensus built by communities. Yes, it's not this kind of like every person for themselves, nature red in tooth and claw, that kind of thing. It's not kind of extreme libertarianism. Yeah, it's not like anarcho-capitalism. <laughs> Fuck those guys. <laughs> uh, so Zahir spends a lot of the first half of, 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 of book three making a lot of good points. Uh, he even he even gets Cora to waver at some point when talking about the fact that, that Cora does not have to deal with the fact that she is the avatar, that it's unfair for her to be given all this power and responsibility that she never really wanted in the first place and that she can be free to do as she wants. Um, when they have they have a little uh, conference meeting in the spirit world, uh, although while he's doing that, they are actively trying to kidnap her while she's uh, she's meditating. He he does go hard as we talked about earlier. <laughs> a lot of lot of violence. Yes, a lot of violence. And you know there is a lot of debate to be had about the place uh, for violence in movements for social change mm. because often power will not give up without violence mm. um there is pretty much no positive change that has been made in society ever by everyone just asking nicely yeah and often you know again not to linger too heavily on the point but uh this this the reason why uh anarchy is uh, is associated with you know the 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 bomb throwing mask wearing uh rebel in the 17th and 18th centuries is because of the need you need that if if a violent system is going to oppress you violently, then you need to meet force with force, which is you know the exact way reason why the the anarchy movement in Spain was stamped out almost immediately because of overwhelming violence against the against that system that was flourishing. And I would say that it is also partly why um, that part of the part of the motivation behind how governments portray different forms of protest. Um, and they, you know, try to funnel people's energy into the the most, uh, you know, agreeable and seemingly legitimate forms of protest, yeah. um, which have a place in a diversity of tactics that you need to achieve change. But they try they try to alienate uh, the majority of people who want change from. The people who also want that same change but are willing to yeah. do violence against property or people for it. Yeah, and the the this sort of uh, um, violent delights and violent ends kind of thing is is even shown in the show. Every single one of the Red Lotus, apart from um, apart from Zahir, who ends up imprisoned again, all die in horribly violent ways. Oh God, the uh, the explosion lady dies in. It's horrible and. Uh, 
Yeah. A little funny. They wrap but... metal around her head, isn't it? And then I it, think it's a bucket. A bucket, and then it she explode. Her head explodes. Yeah. Um. The the guy the Earthbender is crushed under a mountain. Um. I can't remember what happens to the Waterbender. Oh, I need to rewatch. Um, but yeah, they all die in, in very violent ways compared to how the other villains... Are, well, I mean, not all the villains, but most of the villains are with. Um, I feel that Zaheer and the Red Lotus are treated, like, by, in terms of theme, a lot ha- more harshly than a woman who has literal concentration camps. Oh, God, she does, doesn't she? Well, on the subject of that... Kuvira. Yeah. The, um... I mean, it's hard to follow Zaheer as an antagonist. Mm. Um... But we go from three quite nuanced antagonists to one who I would say has the least nuance out of the whole show. Yeah. Um, which does make you feel the best about them getting defeated. So as we've alluded to before, Kuvira is a kind of mid to low ranking um, Earth Kingdom military officer. And she is really devoted to restoring a bit of stability to the Earth Kingdom after the events of the previous series. Mm. So dealing with bandits and things like that. She will turn up in an area, pacify it, and hand out supplies, but also station troops there. Um, Very much a kind of uh, Pax Romana type vibe. And as her influence grows, um, she starts to set her sights broader and broader and starts to gain the popularity and the military might and the confidence to steamroll other Earth Kingdom uh, fiefdoms and to eventually take on Republic City um, with some very cool military hardware, but we don't want to ruin that one. (laughs) Yeah, and there's also the aspect of um, a very early 20th century kind of thing where um, the heir apparent to the Earth Kingdom... Uh, is a uh, a fate, decadent in air quotes, foppish, foppish fella, who is you know he's a nice enough guy, but he's just like yeah, very very out of touch yeah. with uh, the lives of normal people. Mm. He is very much that kind of playboy prince kind of, um, yeah, has no concept of 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 life for normal people. Yeah, yeah, uh, which you know is the uh, another sort of. Uh, driving motivation behind for I guess for, for the the plot that is for Kavira taking control. She does so at the supposed coronation ceremony of this king, uh, where she's delivering the opening speech, but instead make makes it her like her a uh, bit for power. Uh, like I said at the top of this bit of the podcast, it's it, they they go some way <laughs> to to making peace, or we have to deal with this person with the fascist uh, nicely. Mm. Um, she ha- also concentration camps and she creates uh, essentially the atomic bomb. Yes, um, and as the series goes, as as the, the the fourth series goes on, it goes. I think the the Cora and and a lot of the other main characters lag behind the viewer um, in recognizing the type of threat that Kuvira is. Obviously, we know a bit more than they do because we get to see scenes that they don't watch. Yeah, and also we have seen fascism and uh, nuclear weapons in the real world. So I think that that tension between what Cora knows and feels and what a viewer knows and feels um, is, I think, part of you know the, 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 the kind of instructive and the storytelling in it. So Kuvira's got to be stopped. 
Um, and, you know, they, they try discussion and negotiation, and when it becomes apparent that she is intent on violent conquest, mm. eventually push comes to shove, and there is a violent confrontation. This being the last series of the of the whole show, it would be a little it'd be a spicy ending if she won. Um, <laughs> she doesn't win. No. She is defeated. But there is there is one spoiler that we would like to 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 drop in here because I think it really deserves talking about. Hmm. So you know we said how Zahir's three friends in the Red Lotus all die horrible grisly deaths just for being anarchists. Well, not just being anarchist, yeah. being terrorist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, that's how they deal with those characters in the story. And I'm mm. talking about they as the writers. How do they deal with the fascist warlord? Yeah, how do you deal with uh, with Avatar Hitler? <laughs> <laughs> House arrest. Yeah. That thing that has always stopped dictators <laughs> and fascists from coming back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there are um there are countless episodes throughout history um that have shown that at the end of a big conflict you got to have you, a Nuremberg. Yeah. Uh you got to you got to get rid of some fascists because and this is not us glorying in violence and death or glorying in the defeat of our enemies but some people are too dangerous to remain alive. Um, and, you know, if we're talking about, for example, in the real world, people who, you know, painstakingly orchestrated uh, the biggest genocide known to humanity, putting them under house arrest is not going to... It's not gonna, they're not going to see the error of their ways. Mm. Um, they're going to be looking for a way back into power to finish the job. Yeah. And so, um, I haven't read a lot of the, like, no. accessory materials around Legend of Korra, because there's some graphic novels and stuff like that. But, I would be surprised if Kuvira stays put. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know whether it's an intentional thing or not, but it's just a very milk toast way to go out yeah. in terms of dealing with... A, 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 Especially having, having killed three out of the four anarchist terrorists, to let the fascist dictator go under house arrest not even like arrest arrest yeah house arrest in a luxury home mm. uh, it's not even Zaheer as well because uh, well uh, we'll, we'll transition transition onto the, the mature themes of, of Korra now by just mentioning this thing spoiler just just you got a five seconds from now spoiler but um it's not just Zaheer and his guys who go out because Aman blows up on a boat in a murder-suicide <laughs> Yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> his, his brother blows him up in a murder-suicide on a boat. Uh, and how about that for a kid's show? <laughs> First season, the end of a kid's show. Right? But also think about who these violent deaths happen to. <laughs> Who's the only one who survives? Right? So, the the equality guy, the spirituality and connection with the earth guy, and the freedom guys, all dead. Yep. Apart, well, apart from here. All dead. The one that gets to survive... And under house fucking arrest is yeah. the fascist military dictator. I mean, you just, you just, you just got to think. Really <laughs> makes you think, doesn't it? We live in a society. 
it wouldn't be a Lorax episode unless Kinko and I were railing against fascism at one point or another. <laughs> but uh, we have to talk about uh, the theme for the episode uh, and something that uh, is really the big thing with Cora um, is growing up with the audience and becoming a grown-up show um, in a in a very positive and, 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 and effective way. Because if you were 10 when Avatar first aired, um, Avatar... Aired. aired. Very good, very good. Um, you'd be seventeen when Cora started, the same age as Cora in the first sh- in the first season. And you say it becomes a grown-up show. It doesn't. It becomes a teen show. True. Yeah. Like it, it becomes a show about becoming an adult. Mm, yeah. So, Airbender is a show, mostly for children, about children, about the experience of being a child and that that period of growth. Yeah. And then Legend of Cora is a show that's ostensibly mostly for teens about mostly teens and about that experience of growth and becoming an adult yeah so that's why you get um you get a lot of uh, like like we said we were being flippant about it but there's a lot of relationship drama in in the in the show but not in terms of drama for drama's sake these are characters who are teens who are exploring that nature of their their lives and personalities yeah, learning about themselves learning about each other learning about these connections and how that interacts with for example, friendships and responsibility and stress and pressure and and trauma and things mm. like that. Yeah, and in fact, um, a little a little mention as well is about the 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 role of same sex relationships in the show because it's implied at the end of the show there's one major same sex relationship and quite a powerful one. And this is listener a big 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 spoiler. So cover your ears. We're warning you if you don't want to hear it because. This is the end of the show. Okay, five, four, three, two, one. Spoiler incoming. Cora and Asami. They uh, walk off into not the sunset, but something else. Yes. Um, and okay, you can uncover your ears now. The way that that is portrayed, not as something that is played for kind of laughs or played for like drama, it's just something that is and something that emerges from those characters growth and their relationship and it forms part of just them yeah i i I mean i would say when i when it first happened i thought i was like oh that came out a bit not out of nowhere i to be fair i was spoiled for it before i Mm -hmm. went into the the bit where it happened and so i picked up on the clues along the way Mm -hmm. but i can see how some people were a little bit uh taken aback by it um but then it's not actually explicit explicit however in the in the expanded comics this relationship is explicitly underlined by the writers and i think it's in the core show i think it's good that it is not something that is made a joke of or not something that is done for shock value even Mm. if it does surprise some people you know maybe they needed to be surprised and that coming to terms with that in a work of fiction might help people come to terms with the idea of same-sex partnerships or, or anything like that in the real world. Uh, but to, to, to move on to the other aspects of the, of the more mature, in air quotes, um, side of, of Korra, uh, there are some things that really do make it stand out stark compared to Avatar. Um, uh, some of the things that we just have down in the notes is that three, we've already mentioned the violent ends of some of the antagonists, but three characters um, are, are depicted attempting suicide. Oh, I'd forgotten. Uh, with only one of the only one of them unsuccessful, um, we have 
a whole very affecting arc about Cora dealing with PTSD from her torture, from being tortured and poisoned with mercury. Mm-hmm. And um, I have to give a shout out to Janet Varney for just incredible job as Cora in that, in general, but in particular that thing. Them. Yeah. Um, yes. of just an incredible way of, of, of evoking that in the character. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think it's another thing that people use as a stick to not necessarily beat Korra, especially not critics, because obviously it's a critic's darling, but audience members who are like, you know, it doesn't, as in like, oh, it's so dark and um, miserable and things like this. Uh, but, you know, that's life, that's life, baby. <laughs> also, like, I, you know, I know not everyone has the same experience of being a teenager, but for some people, um, and being real here, me included, Parts of being a teenager were pretty dark, um, yeah. and not necessarily because I was taking on, uh, you know, spiritual battles against uh, my uncle who had possessed a great spirit, mm. or saving the world from a fascist dictator or anything. Yeah. But being a teenager can be a really complex and uh, powerful and distressing and and also uplifting experience. Mm. Um, and so I think, and it's darker than being a kid mostly. Yeah. And so leaning into that, I think is part of it growing up as a show, just like with last airbender, having a kind of an ensemble cast of main characters means that you can portray different aspects and experiences of being an adolescent and a young adult. So I, I I think yeah that that very much encapsulates the idea of the show and and I think you can hear in Killing and Mind's voices just how much we uh, we enjoyed this show. Uh, I think also you know it helps watching the show as an adult because it it really it's it perf- works perfectly fine as a show for adults as well as for teens. And watching it as an adult is really interesting to see it with a, that little bit of perspective. Mm, yeah. And yeah, go watch Cora. <laughs> it's really watch good. Watch Airbender first. Watch, watch Cora. Cora. Yeah, um, it's all on uh, Netflix and various streaming sites. Um, you're doing yourself a disservice by not. If you've got kids, watch Airbender with your kids. Yeah, my little uh, brother, who uh, was I think nine or ten when I recommended it to him, absolutely devoured it, and then immediately watched all of Cora and loved that. Um, and I'm sure he will understand a bit more of Cora when he's a bit older. Yeah. So that's it for this episode. We'll be back soon with another another episode of the Lorax on something. Um, so something you love. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to show you the problems and another thing you love. Yeah. Well, another thing we love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what we're here, baby. But but we you know we might move away from uh, like cartoons for a little bit. Yeah. Um, because we've been doing quite a lot of that, so we might yeah. some other stuff. We'll see you next time. Bye. Why, like, why do you think people think that Korra is... Because we uh, uh, know people who think that Korra's worse. Or not worse, but they just don't like it compared to Airbender. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a, a not insignificant amount of people who think that Korra's bad, objectively bad. Yeah. It and... can't just be the female protagonist thing. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Because, like, I know it's art and it's subjective, but they're wrong. <laughs> um, I, I think... Yeah, but maybe people kind of 
got really invested in the world of Last Airbender because they loved it. Yeah. And they don't like the remix to that song. True. Um, and I get it. Uh, as in, I, I get why they might think that. Mm. Because they've done some quite bold things with the world in that time jump. Yeah. Um, and I think it makes the story better. And I think it makes... It, it it really lets you know that you are telling a different story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, for me, um, a lot of the stuff I see online, in particular, a lot of it does. Uh, it's hard to look past the initial point we made because it, when people, sometimes when people complain about something, and it's something you know we explore a lot on the podcast, is like you just have to ask Louis Theroux style questions until you get to the actual root of it. Mm-hmm. It's like people's like, oh, I don't like Cora. Why don't you like Cora? Oh, she's oh, not likable. She's yeah, she's not likable. Why? She's too headstrong. Okay, why? Why is that a problem? Mm-hmm. Oh, because you like Zuko. Yeah, you like Zuko. He was headstrong. You like soccer. He was, yeah. you know. So what's the problem? Oh, because she's the. And then you get down to the thing, mm-hmm. you know. I'm not saying that all people dislike. People can have opinions, obviously. Yeah, I mean, otherwise we'll be about saying Cora. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is what, what's what this whole podcast is about, right? But yeah, I, I, it just boggles my mind a little bit, and I, I can see why. I, I think I agree with your point that some people obviously the airbend is very very whimsical, mm-hmm. right? And then to bring in a sh- bring in a new set of ideas and themes to suddenly be like we're gonna talk about anarchy. <laughs> yeah, and I you know I like you love that shit. Yeah, but I think uh, you know for some people uh, they prefer a little bit more of an escapist story with a very clear. There is a big bad, mm. and the goodies have to stop the big bad. Yeah, which is more of an airbender vibe. Yeah. Um, this one, you might have to think about politics a bit. Yeah, I mean, like some people are like, oh, what? How is this all this possible? All this stuff, like Republic City and stuff, and then it's like, well, like you said in the show, like they had tanks, right? In airbender, <laughs> they had and tanks. warships powered by like you know, this big shit coming out of the, the chimneys. They can shoot fire out of their asses. Why is <laughs> right? But like going back, going back to the politics point though, like I have some people who I would call close friends who don't really tend to enjoy talking about politics and tend mm. to get quite like they won't say, Oh, stop, stop, stop. But they will, you can see them getting uncomfortable when yeah. you start talking about like, you know, and or asking questions about how the world works and yeah. why, and why do things have to be a certain way? Yeah. Um, and it's easier you know, it's, it's it's a self-defense mechanism for them. It's it's easier to just be like, yes, I know the world is fucked, but it just has to be this way. Yeah. Rather yeah, yeah. than examining it and, and you know, it can be uncomfortable to examine it, but you've got to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's the reason why we did the podcast, right? Because right? it's to stop people from just being like, not everything is about fascism. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out it is. <laughs> but we'll continue that crusade. Yeah.